our passage this morning comes from Romans chapter 2. We're reading verses 11 through 16. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to grab it and open to Romans 2 and follow along. Verses 11 to 16. Hear then the word of God. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Good morning, Hicks and Prez. We uh, are gathered once again to continue our journey, our study in the book of Romans, and we are working our way through the first three chapters. Uh, chapters one to three is really where Paul, uh, or you could say God, is uh, making the argument and showing that all of humanity is guilty, that every human being is guilty before God. And he does it not just to crush us or to hurt our feelings or to make us feel bad about ourselves, but he is showing that all of us are guilty because he wants to show us that we all need a Savior. And he wants to show us that he has sent his only Son that we might be delivered from our guilt through faith in Him. And so you heard the passage read this morning from Romans chapter 2. We're talking about how God shows no partiality. And it's part of Paul's argument as he built it that God is an impartial judge. And so we're going to look at that, the fact that God is an impartial judge. And because He's an impartial judge, we all need a Savior. And then finally, we're going to take a few minutes and apply God's impartiality and what that means for us out of this text. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word that is living and true. And we thank You that You have given it to us, that You are a God who speaks and You are not silent. Father, we ask that You would speak this Word to us afresh. Help us to understand it. Help us to understand who You are as the impartial judge of the universe and who we are as those who are guilty before you and in need of a Savior, pray that you would awaken us to our need and awaken us to what that means as we live every day before you. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can you imagine uh, if human judges were fully omniscient and fully wise? So omniscient means that they know everything, that they know all things, and that they know the thoughts and the intentions of everybody's hearts. They know everything that has happened, right? So if they know everything about a case, if they're a judge, can you imagine if the judge then knew everything about a case, right? It would ruin an entire genre of TV and uh, movie making, the whole police drama and the mystery where it's all built around the, the searching for the truth, 
right? The following of clues and the, you know, the, the reading of the signs and the interviewing of people and reading people and, and, and searching beyond what people are saying and what circumstances look like and how things are being misled and searching underneath, looking for the truth. And finally, in the end, being able to uncover, hopefully, the truth and to bring someone to justice. All of this is unnecessary if the judge already knows everything. He already knows who did it. He already knows the motive that they have. Was it for love or money? You know, or for all the other motives of the human heart. He already knows not only who did it and how they did it and why they did it, And so when the person is brought before him, he's never thrown off. He's never thrown off by their education. He's a a PhD. He's a doctor in the local hospital. He is good-looking or smart. He's not thrown off by their wealth, by their appearance, by eloquent lawyers spinning the case and, and leading in certain directions. He knows. He knows. There's no pretending. There's no misleading. There's no hiding of evidence. All is laid bare before him. When you stand before that judge, he knows. He knows it all. Every human being would get a fair trial. More fair, perhaps, than we would even want. The truth would be fully known. No one would break the law and get away with it. Because he knows. The judge knows. And Paul is making the case that God is exactly this kind of judge. He is wise and omniscient. And being omniscient and knowing all these things, he is able to be impartial and not be led this way or that way by any outward circumstance or outward appearance or other things that may confuse. He is just and impartial, right? This is what verse 11 just states in categorical terms. Verse 11, God shows no partiality. The NIV says, translated as God shows no favoritism. He has no favorites. He treats everyone equally. Everyone is judged by the same standard. You know, this is what we want, that, that, that everybody is held accountable to the law. And we, we say that it doesn't matter who you are. You're not above the law. Whether you're the president or a congress, congressman, a congresswoman, or whatever position you hold, no one is above the law. The same standard should be applied to everyone, and it should be applied equally and fairly and justly and impartially. Justice is often pictured, you'll see it, as a, as a woman who stands blindfolded holding a set of balanced scales, right? And she is blindfolded because, in a sense, justice is blind. It's not blind to the truth or the, of the matter in the case, but it's blind to the person. It, it, it's impartial. It doesn't see the person. It doesn't see what they look like. It doesn't see what their education level is. It doesn't see all the different things that can come into play. She is blind to all those things so that the scales of justice are balanced and impartial. Justice says no one is above the law. He's impartial. He's not partial to any person, to any group, 
And he's not biased against any person or group. He does not favor the educated or the uneducated. He doesn't favor the rich over the poor. And he doesn't favor the poor over the rich. He's not partial based on physical appearance. He doesn't favor anyone based on their race or their ethnicity or their heritage. He doesn't, he's not partial to them because they grew up in the church or they grew up in the slums or they grew up in a palace or they grew up in, a, in, the, in the countryside or they grew up in a city. He's not partial. And this is the main point of this text, that he's not partial based on ethnicity or race or heritage. And in this passage, as the hearers of the day would have heard it, it's a shocker. This is a shocker to them. Because what he is saying in this passage, and we will unfold it here, he is saying God is not partial to the Jews. And he's not biased against the Gentiles. He, has, he doesn't play favorites. When it comes to judgment, judgment will be impartial. And this is where all of Romans 1 and 3, it's the point that 1 to 3 is making. And if you haven't read 1 to 3 together as a group, I encourage you today or this week in your quiet time, read Romans 1 to 3 together. And what, you are, what Paul is doing is, is he's breaking down the idea that there is a special privileged group or a biased group against when it comes to judgment. And he's breaking down this idea. You look back in verse 11, it's really a hinge verse. It, it kind of concludes the verses that came before it, and it introduces what we're about to look at in the following verses, 12 to 16. And so if you look back at verses 9 and 10, it says, there will be tribulation and distress. Judgment, right before that it says, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. For every human being. And then he makes it clear that, he, that he's impartial. He doesn't have favors for the Jew first and also for the Greeks. For both. Both will be judged. And he says in verse 10, there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone. For all people, for every human being, regardless of their race and their background, regardless of all these things, for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. He is not partial to one of these groups over the other group. He says to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, the Jews have had more light. The Jews have had some advantages. The law and the prophets have come from them. The Savior has come from among the Jews. And, and so he says the judgment will come to the Jews first, but he's not partial. He's not saying that the glory and the honor will come to them first only. He says also the distress and the wrath and fury will come to them first also. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being, the Jew first, and then the Gentile. He's saying judgment begins with the Jews. But it's also the Gentiles. And he judges them all together. And he judges them all impartially. And he judges them all according to justice of their good and their evil. They will be judged the same. They will be judged alike. And what Paul is doing is he is leveling the playing field. There is no one who is exempt from judgment. Everyone needs a Savior. And this is a little bit shocking for the crowd because Israel has been God's favored people in one sense and they're going to struggle to hear and to understand 
how the privileges that they have had do not make them privileged in terms of judgment, privileged before God, that everyone will be held accountable in the same way. And everyone is going to need a Savior in the same way. Paul is making this point throughout the entire book of Romans. And we'll bump up against it time and time again. He is trying to break down the wall of distinction between Jew and Gentile. And he says it as clearly as can be in Romans 10 as he works his way there. Romans 10, verse 12, he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. There is no distinction. God is the God of the entire world, of all people, of all nations, of all races. Jesus is Lord of all, King of all the world. He is King of all kings. And He is the Savior of everyone who He says will call on Him. All who call on Him, anyone who calls on Him, from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. It's stated so many ways throughout the New Testament. The Old Testament distinction between Jew and Gentile that God had established is being abolished in Christ. It goes away in Christ. That the, level, the, the, the playing field is leveled in Christ. With the coming of Christ, the, the Gentile and the Jewish world are reconciled in one person, in the Savior. It's said many ways throughout the New Testament. It's so clearly said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He says this, For He Himself, that is, Jesus, for He Himself is our peace, And if you read the text, it's going to be so clearly the peace between Jew and Gentile, the reconciling of the hostility that had existed, the distinction that had existed, that he himself, Jesus, is our peace. And it goes on, he who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, he has made us one, and he's broken down in his flesh, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, in his own person. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing it. How does he abolish it? He says, by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances. Right? What he's talking about here is the Old Testament. The law and the commandments. The law as enshrined in the Old Testament. And the ordinances. The, the Old Testament religion and the way worship was done in the temple and, and all around uh, the Jewish worship. He says he has abolished Old Testament religion. And we see that this is, a, is simply a fact of history. That in A.D. 70 the temple is destroyed. And it's never been rebuilt and Old Testament religion is, is, is gone. It does not, there is no temple. There is no sacrifice. There is no holy of holies. The temple is destroyed. And he is saying because Jesus came, this was his intention to abolish Old Testament religion. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. That there would no longer be two Jew and Gentile. That they would create one new man out of the two, making peace so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing, destroying the hostility that used to exist. And it's there as you read the, the New Testament and the Old. Jesus meets the woman at the well. She is shocked that he's even talking to her. 
that he would have a drink with her, that he would would ask things of her, that he would talk to her like there was no hostility. She's shocked because there was hostility between Jew and Gentile and Jew and Samaritans who were half Gentiles. And it's shocking to the woman that Jesus acts like there's no hostility. And he treats her with respect and and he shares a drink with her and he talks to her in Christ because he reconciles all the world to God, Jew and Gentile together. And in reconciling us both to God in his own body, in his own death, in his own sacrifice, he reconciles us together. And he abolishes the old distinctions. And he creates one new body in the body of Christ, the church. Colossians 3 says it clearly in so many ways this is said in the New Testament. Colossians 3.11, he says, here there is not Greek or Jew. The distinction is gone. It no longer exists. And then he says, circumcised or uncircumcised, which is just another way of saying Greek and Jews, right? The Jews are circumcised and the Greeks aren't. But it's also a way of saying that there is no more Old Testament law that way. There's no longer Jew or Greek, but this was the, the legal way and the physical way of marking the difference between the two, and he says it doesn't exist anymore. There's no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all, and he is in all. All walls of distinction and hostility are abolished in Christ, and that is true for today. The church should be a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-labeled bunch. They come from every walk of life. And all of the distinctions are that when you put your faith in Christ, we all become one new man in Him. One body, one family. And so Jews and Gentiles, that is all people, will receive or not receive eternal life on the same basis. All are lost. All need a Savior. So God is impartial. There is no distinction. And so everyone needs a Savior. And this is what Paul's unpacking in the following verses. In verse 12, he says this, for all who have sinned without the law, those would be the Gentiles. They don't have the law. right? The the Jewish Old Testament And those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that is the Jews, those who had the law of God, those who knew the commands, who had the light of the truth of God's law, and those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So neither one escapes. Those who are without the law will perish without it. And those with the law will be judged by it. And how many, how many in Israel sinned under the law? All have sinned. So whether you have the law or not, our sin will be judged. And all people will be held accountable to God. He has no favorites. He is not partial. And so having the law doesn't exempt anyone from judgment. You might hear in a passage like this, whichever group you were in, you might think you're exempt from judgment. 
right? The Jew might think he's exempt from judgment. You kind of hear it when Jesus confronts the Jewish leadership. They're always throwing at him. Isn't Moses our father? You know, don't we have the law? You know, Moses gave us a law. Don't we have Abraham as our father? Isn't he, you know, who are you to judge us, right? We have this heritage. We have the law. We have the prophets. We have Moses and Abraham. They might think they stand in a privileged position and that they are perhaps exempt from the judgment that Jesus was bringing. Jesus would come and try to show them their need for him, the need for the Savior, and they would reject it because of their heritage, because of their privileges. But Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, God is saying, having the law does not exempt anyone from judgment. It actually makes us more accountable, not less. You had more light than everyone else. You knew better than anyone else what was required of God. And the law shows you more than anyone else your failure to keep it. Paul is saying that God is impartial, that justice does not favor the Jews, but it doesn't favor anyone else either. All will will be equally. And so Paul is working here in Romans 1 to 3. He's working toward, as you reach the climax in the end of of chapter 3, he's working toward this conclusion, Romans 3, 23 and 24, very familiar to many of us. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory. And in the context of the passage, that's Jew and Gentile. That is the rest, the Jew and the rest of the world. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And all will be justified in the same way, the only way, by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And in Him alone where we are reconciled both to God and to each other. All have sinned. The Savior came through the Jewish nation. He did. But He came for everyone. He came for the Jews and He came for the Gentiles. He came for us all because we all had the same problem. The same sin problem. The same guilt problem. And He came for us all. Jew and Gentile. Black and white. Rich and poor. So in verses 14 to 16, Paul addresses the Gentiles. And you'll see in 14 to 16, he's addressing the Gentiles. And in 17 to 24, he's addressing the Jews, right? So in verse 14, he says, for when the Gentiles, and he starts talking about them. And in 17, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, and then he addresses them. So he comes after both. Again, Paul's an equal opportunity preacher. He's impartial. He comes after everybody. Nobody gets off the hook. Starts with the Gentiles right here in verse 14. He says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, this is true, they did not have the benefit of the law the way the Jews did. Though they did not have the law by nature, they still are able to do what the law requires. Why? Because they're a law to themselves. How do they get to be a law to themselves? Even though they don't have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts and their consciences bear witness to it what is Paul saying he is saying that they know and this is what he said if you remember in chapter one Paul has been uh, making the case that everyone knows and everyone is without excuse whether you're a Jew or a Gentile you know 
and you're without excuse. And in chapter 1, he made the case that God has revealed himself in creation. That his eternal nature, that his power and his glory is, is revealed in what he made. And as he says, it's been revealed in verse 20 of chapter 1. He comes to the conclusion, therefore, you are without excuse. And in verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. And he's saying everyone, through what has been made, knows. And they're without excuse. And they do not honor God as God. And here, Paul makes the next case. He takes the case to the next level. And in chapter 2 here, he's making the case, not only is God revealed in creation, in general, he is saying that God is revealed in human nature. He is saying that every human being is made in the very image of God. And being made in the image of God, they have, in a sense, the law written on our nature. In other words, every human being has a built-in, instinctive sense of right and wrong. They instinctively know that murder is wrong. There is something written in the very nature and DNA of human beings that they know that stealing is wrong. That they know to lie to other people is wrong. And their conscience bears witness to that fact. And it speaks the truth to us. This voice <clears throat> so not only do we know there's something built in in human nature, he's saying something about human nature. As the image bearers of God that we know, creation is screaming it and proclaiming God's glory to the world. And our own nature is bearing witness to the moral fabric of our creation. God's image, he says, that's what in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. God's image is embedded, is imprinted on every human being. And we all have this internal compass toward right and wrong, and we know, and there's a line judge, the conscience. You know what a line judge is, right? He, he stands on the line, you know, it's a tennis thing, you have umpires in baseball, and they're also line judges. They're watching the line. Is the ball fair or foul? Was the ball in or out? And the line judge tells you, and as we're living and we know when we lie, the line judge says that was out. And we know it was out. When we contemplate in killing our neighbor or killing our coworker or killing our spouse or killing the guy in the car in front of us because he's making us crazy, there is something in every one of us that knows that's out. It's wrong. It's evil. And this is what Paul is saying. Sometimes a conscience affirms our behavior. This is why when we help people and when we do good, when there's a disaster, like the tornadoes that came through and we go and help, and human beings of all stripes, not just Christians, come and help and it feels good to help others. This is when the best comes out of humanity. It's a testimony to the image of God in us that, to, that it feels good. It's right. The line judge says, in, that's right. consciences sometimes affirm and sometimes condemn. And our consciences can vary in sensitivity, in, in sensitivity and in accuracy. They can be sensitive or insensitive. 
They become insensitive. The more we resist our conscience, the more we do behavior that the line judge says out and we kind of like it and we do it anyway. And the line judge says out and we kind of like it and do it anyway. And the more we do it, the more we resist conscience, the more we do the things that we shouldn't. We become calloused. Our conscience becomes calloused and less sensitive. And we begin to do wrong things. And you see this in humanity. And we see it where people more and more do what is wrong. And they start calling it right. They call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. And their conscience is seared. Mark Twain said that a clear conscience is a sure sign of a bad memory. Right? It's a sure sign that you're just not remembering correctly, that your, 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 your conscience is insensitive and your memory isn't remembering the things that you did. And anyone who has a good memory knows their guilt. We know that we do wrong. All of us do. All have sinned and fall short of what God requires. Even those who do not have the Ten Commandments, we know. And those who have the law more than anyone else should know they fail to keep it. We fall short. And again, God brings this indictment. He brings this knowledge not to crush us or make us feel bad, but to reveal our need of a Savior, to bring us all to the place where we will be open to put our faith and trust in Christ And so in verse 16, he speaks of that day. Our conscience is accusing or excusing. He says, on that day, we will know when justice is brought to bear according to the gospel. And the gospel speaks of our need as well as the provision for our need. The gospel is that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he will save you from your guilt and sin. But it it must include the idea that we have guilt and sin. And so the fullness of the gospel is to bring the law and conscience to bear so that we understand. And then the gospel applies the remedy that is in Christ. In verse 16, he says that on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. He will judge our secrets. Remember, as I said in the beginning of that judge who who knows. He knows what happened. He knows it all. What happened behind closed doors. He knows what goes on in your heart and in your mind. He knows the secrets of men. He doesn't just judge our behavior. He doesn't just judge what other people can see. He judges our secrets. And my friends... If you know your own heart, if you know your own heart at all, and you know that God knows your secrets, then you ought to know that you are in big trouble. We're all in big trouble because He knows our secrets. He knows the depths of our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows what we've done. Even when no one else was looking, No one breaks the law and gets away with it. The judge is impartial. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what position you hold or how powerful you are. 
It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you have a PhD or a fifth grade education. God knows. And no one who breaks the law will get away with it. And this is Romans 3, 23 and 24, where he is going. No one breaks the law and gets away with it, and there's nothing on earth that can save you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory. All have sinned and fall short of what God requires. And there's only one way to be justified. That is made right before God, delivered from our guilt, justified before the law, delivered from our guilt before God. There is one way, it says, by His grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ and through faith in Him and Him alone. And so as we look to apply this, and let me apply it in, in a handful of ways here at the end. The first one ought to be obvious at this point. And it's sort of the opposite, or it is the complement, uh, juxtaposed with this idea that God is impartial and all men are guilty. And all women, and all children, all people. And the complement of that, though, is that anyone impartial, God is impartial in His judgment, and He is impartial as He says, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, black or white, anyone who puts their faith in Christ Jesus will be saved and delivered from their guilt. They will be justified by His grace as a gift. That Jesus will be the one who has paid the debt and the penalty of your sin in your place. He's borne the guilt and paid the price to make us justified. So you may be out there and you may be thinking that He cannot save me or He won't save me. He doesn't care about me and you're harboring some reason why His grace can't reach to you. You've done too much. You're too bad. The secrets of your heart make you think maybe that you're not even savable. But God says He is impartial. And He says that we are all guilty, more guilty than we like to think. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. Anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. If we would dare to believe that through Christ, even I can be saved. So that's first anyone impartially who puts their faith in Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever should Believe. Whosoever. That's you. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you have done. Whosoever will believe and put their faith in Christ will not perish, but have life. And so second application then is this, that genuine Christianity is a religion of the heart. That, that it's the heart that matters. And that we need to look to the heart. And that's what 16 verse 16 ought to to scream at us on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. That means the things that only we know. He looks at the heart. He looks at what goes on inside in the deep places. God, the impartial judge, knows our secrets. And He's looking at our hearts. And He's looking for truth in the inward places. 
looking for truth inside, not just behavior on the outside. First Chronicles 28.9, when David is giving advice, counsel to his son Solomon, he says this, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him. Serve the God who made you, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Serve him. But he says this, serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Let that service not be superficial. Let it not be the, just the outward formality of your life. Let it not be just going to church and doing the thing and re or reading your Bible or talking about it. Don't, don't, don't let your religion be superficial. But serve him from, he says, a whole heart. A heart that's not divided. Partly to God, partly to the stuff I like. Wholehearted and of a willing mind. Why? Because the Lord searches all hearts. And He understands every plan and every thought. He knows your motives. He knows what's going on inside of there. And He doesn't want duplicity and fakeness and lying. He wants true heart. Right? He says, look to the heart. Guard the heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Look to the heart. Oh, my friends. It tells us that our, our religion, our service should be genuine and true. God knows. God knows. He's not looking at the outside. He's not looking at what everyone else can see. He knows. Only faith in Christ can turn hearts back to God, right, can save the inside of us where we're not just trying to be better on the outside, but, but actually changes our hearts, right, that makes them wholehearted and willing. It is only faith in Christ that turns our hearts back to God, to the one who made us, to make us wholehearted hearted and willing in the secret and deep places. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul again is writing and he says, the aim of our charge, what I'm talking about is this. What we're after is this, a love that issues from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith. It is a sincere faith in Christ that returns our love to God and makes our hearts genuinely a pure heart and a willing spirit. You cannot fake faith in Jesus. You cannot play at religion. God sees through a person. God gets to the heart of the matter. He gets to our hearts. And He knows. So a third application then is this, that Christianity is not only a religion of the heart, but it's a religion of doing. It's not one or the other. Some make it or try to make it a religion of doing. that I'll try to do all the right things. But if our hearts are not given to Christ in faith. But when our hearts are given to Christ in faith, then we have to have a life that matches and flows from that faith. They must match. It's a religion of doing. It's not about having a Bible. Right? It's not about listening to sermons. It's not about having the law. Right? It's about doing the law. Right? This is verse 13. You go back, he says, For it is not the hearers of the law. It's great that, that Israel had the law. It, having the law doesn't make it special all by itself. It's not 
the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It is the doers of the law who will be justified. It is a life that matches the heart. The impartial judge is not going to judge by those who listen to sermons or who had their Bible or who even knew their Bible. They're going to, he's going to judge by those who actually follow Jesus. Right? To put our faith and trust in Christ, to accept Him as Lord and Savior, and this to, is to give ourselves to, the fo- to follow Him. We're followers of Jesus. Some people don't even like to use the name Christian because it gets so misapplied to superficial religion that's out there. It's actually the followers of Christ. The doers of his word and not the hearers only. This is what James says so clearly. James 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 22, he says this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't just have it. Don't just listen to the sermon. You must assimilate and apply the sermon. right? Don't be doers of the word, not hearers only, because if you're a hearer only, you're deceiving yourself. The life must match. The life must follow. If the heart says yes to Jesus, the life must follow. Christianity is not something you can audit. In seminary, I would take classes for credit. And at some point when I had finished, I'd take some more classes, some things that I still wanted to know. I didn't pay for credit. It cost more. It cost more to take it for credit. I audited and his auditing is awesome because you don't have to do any of the work, right? You don't, you don't have to write any papers. You, you don't have to take any tests, right? I don't, I don't have to assimilate or apply the information. All I, I can come, it's just listening. I can come and have the benefit of listening, but I don't actually have to do anything. It's the way a lot of people do Christianity. They think it's an audit class. They come and they listen, and they learn stuff, and they listen to stuff, but they... Don't do anything with it. They don't actually conform their life to Christ and follow. See, if you take the course for credit, it requires you to assimilate the information and to apply the material. You must put it to work. Doing God's word does not save us. But if we are saved, we will do God's word. Right? We have to get the order right. Doing God's word will not save you. But if you are saved, if your faith is in Christ, then we will do the word. We will obey. We will follow. We will love it. Matthew 7, 21 to 24, it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has preached this sermon and he says, not everyone who says to me on that day after he's told them the truth and in a sense preached the law to them, and he says this Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. It's not just saying it, it's not just listening to it, it's the one who does it. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is the guy who builds his house on the rock. And you know what it's like for the guy who builds his house on the sand, is the one who hears these words. And then doesn't follow Jesus. Doesn't do the words. So let me close with this final thing then. It seems as obvious as the day is long, but let me say it anyway. Since God is impartial, we must be impartial. 
Because God is impartial, we must reflect His character. It's one aspect of being doers of His Word. And His Word says, don't be partial. Over and over again in so many ways. I'll just give you the one, James chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality. Do not be biased. Do not prejudge. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, you can't hold it and then show partiality. Condemn whole groups of people, whether it would be Jews or Muslims, black or white, whether it's racism, classism, preferring the rich over the poor, which is what James is addressing. He says, you know, and he goes on to say, if a man comes in wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and he comes into your assembly, you know, you don't treat wealthy people with some kind of awe and poor people as if they don't matter. He says, all of the walls of distinction are destroyed in Christ. And it doesn't matter your station in life, your position, your wealth, your education. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ is all and He is in all. And we show no partiality in the church. Whether we're electing officers, it's not for doctors and lawyers and the rich and the, and the influential and people in the society. It's not a popularity contest. The walls of distinction are broken down. We look for godly men. We look for people who are following Christ and are growing mature in their faith, demonstrated in a life of obedience and maturity. There's no partiality. Every human being is God's image bearer and worthy of our respect. And James goes on to say that our not showing partiality is a fulfillment, he says, of the royal law. And then he says the royal law is this. Do love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which is all similar to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You don't want those to be prejudge you. You don't want others to treat you poorly because of a label. Or the color of your skin. Or the clothes you wear. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But who is my neighbor? That question's been asked before, hasn't it? The whole parable was given as an answer. And Jesus tells a parable of the good Samaritan. He shows that it was a Samaritan who were hated by the Jews. There was a hostility, kind of like Democrats and Republicans these days. And he shows basically the Democrat comes to the wounded Republican. And treats him with grace and mercy and care and kindness and respect. And saves him. Will you cross the street and cross the aisle? Die to your hostility and love your neighbor without prejudice. Love your enemy. Because God did. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you for the way you have loved us. No matter who we were, no matter where we were, no matter what we have done, we can come and know that you hear us, that Christ is for us, that he is an equal opportunity Savior for whosoever will believe, whosoever will trust him and put their faith in him, whosoever would follow. Oh, Father, I pray if there are any listening 
who have not trusted Christ in this way and, and turned their hearts and their lives around to follow him, that today would be the day that they would do it. That they would trust Jesus and follow him. We ask and pray it in his name. Amen.